Look, you have no proof that I sat in my office and watched far more of that clip than was necessary for this sermon. No proof. I forgot how funny these videos were. You can ask Maureen. I just sat in my office and laughed and laughed. I forgot how funny they were. Well, it is officially the first Sunday of summer, and so we are kicking off our first summer sermon series called Summer Shorts, in case you didn't put that together yet. We wanted to take some stories, as Lois mentioned, that we usually talk about as kids and talk about them as adults. Short stories, big impact. And so I kind of took a very, very random poll of about 20 different people, some from our church and some from outside our church, about which typically children's stories they, wanted, they would want to hear during this month-long series. And of all of the stories that they were able to choose from, believe it or not, this morning's sermon... This morning's story was the number one pick. It also happens to be first chronologically, and so this is the one that we're going to start with this morning, the fall of Jericho. Now, I thought that both Lois and VeggieTales did a pretty good job explaining the background of our text for this morning, but I'm just going to add a few more pieces of background information, if you will allow me. Bob the Tomato already told us that after the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, that Moses led them out of Egypt and into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years, waiting for God to bring them to the land that he had promised to them. Now Moses died just before they were able to enter the promised land. And before Moses died, he passed the baton of leadership to Joshua. And so Joshua led them across the Jordan River and into the land that was promised them, but their journey, their struggle was not quite over yet They were close to being able to set down roots, but they weren't quite to the exact location of their new home. But man, were they ever ready. They were ready to experience the land flowing with milk and honey that was promised to them. They were ready to stop traveling, to stop wandering. They were ready to come home. And what is it that stood in their way after hundreds and hundreds of years of slavery, after 40 years of wandering through the desert, what stood in their way was the city of Jericho. So Jericho was known as the oldest city in the world. It was an enormous challenge to think that the Israelites could capture the city. It's not that the city was huge, because we know that they could march around the entire base of it. It's estimated that the city of Jericho at the time would have only been around eight or nine acres. So the size of the city wasn't the issue. It wasn't big. It was fortified. The city would have been surrounded by two separate massive stone walls. The outer wall would have been about six feet thick and 20 feet high. And then if you could get through that, the inner wall would have been 12 feet thick and 30 feet high. And then between the two walls, it was, there was kind of a, a guarded walkway that was about 15 feet wide between the two walls. And then verse 2 of the story tells us that Jericho had many fighting men. Other translations say mighty men of valor. The point being that this city is the oldest in the world for a reason. It has stood against countless enemies. Every single army that has tried to attack Jericho has failed. So history would tell them, would tell the Israelites that it is impossible for them to win a war against Jericho. And that's where it's interesting because we talk about this as the battle of Jericho when actually there was no battle at all. If there had been a battle, the usual plan would have been to build kind of a siege ramp against the wall 
of the city, and then to eventually march your entire army up that wall and into the city. But to do something like that would have taken upwards of a year for the Israelite army. Now, one of the upsides of that would have been that during that year's time, Jericho would have been cut off from the rest of civilization, and so it would have eventually cut off their food supply. But here's the thing that we fail to mention in the children's version of this story. Because I think that we imagine that when the Israelites showed up to Jericho, that the Israelites had no chance of overpowering them, right? Isn't that kind of what we imagine? But that wasn't the case. The Israelites probably outnumbered the city of Jericho 2,000 to 1. They speculate that there would have been somewhere around one to 2,000 people in the city of Jericho at the time. Well, scripture tells us that there were over 2 million people in the nation of Israel and over 600,000 in their army alone. So we have to be very clear in telling this story that it wasn't that Israel didn't have the manpower to overtake Jericho. It's that war wasn't God's plan for them at the time. So one author said that perhaps the greatest battle that Joshua and his men had to fight that week was not outside them, but inside because it's hard to follow God's plan when you have one of your own. Isn't that so true for us as well, that it's hard to follow God's plan when we have a plan of our own? And that's where the story kind of takes a crazy turn, because let's be honest, God's plan is ridiculous. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It is crazy. Despite the fact that Joshua's people outnumbered Jericho 2,000 to 1, This was God's plan. Take all of the people and march around the city once a day for six days. Bring the Ark of the Covenant with you and have seven priests go in front of the Ark with ram's horns and then do all of this in silence, right? But on the seventh day, have everyone march around the city seven times while the priests blow their trumpets. And then the priests will give one long last blast on their trumpets. And when they do that, everybody's just supposed to yell, And then that 20-foot wall and that 30-foot wall are just supposed to collapse. That was God's plan. It's insane. Can you imagine what Joshua must have been thinking? This is the oldest, most fortified, wealthiest city in the known world. And God's plan for bringing it down is to have Joshua and his friends walk around it and start yelling. (laughs) Had it been me, I feel like I would have just stood there and blinked like the cucumber did, (laughs) and then I would have laughed hard, out loud. Then if I realized that God had actually been serious, I would have asked a thousand questions, but not Joshua and not the Israelites. The text goes right from there into explaining how Joshua carried out God's plan by gathering his army and instructing them just as God told them. I have combed this text over and over and over again, looking for the part where Joshua laughed in God's face or told God that he was crazy, but it's just not there. I even looked for places in the text where Joshua may have asked God some very reasonable, rational questions about this completely illogical plan, but it's not there either. God told Joshua to do something that was absurd, at the very least, and in the face of military language, was irresponsibly dangerous at best. 
And Joshua just did it. It's mind-blowing. His faith and his obedience are mind-blowing. And it wasn't just Joshua's faith and obedience. It was his people as well. If you were in the general population of Israelites or even in the army at that time, and Joshua had come back and told you that marching and yelling was the plan to bring down Jericho, would you just hop to with no questions whatsoever? I'm guessing not. So why? Why didn't they respond in the way that seems most human to us? Why in the world did they not just turn around? Why did they just turn around and do what God said to do? And that's when we have to realize that this short story is a part of a much, much bigger narrative. When we tell this story to little kids, it's not as if we're talking about the larger narrative of God and of God's people. This story by itself is fun and wacky and it's shortened, ver- shortened form. But when we, when we actually know what the bigger story is, when we know what God asked Joshua to do, when we realize that though what God asked Joshua to do was crazy, everybody knows that you can't conquer an entire city by marching around the walls, but Joshua did it. And why did he do it? He did it because God told him to. And why should Joshua believe God? Because God promised that he would get Joshua's people out of the oppressive hand of Egypt. And God did. And he did it through something as ridiculous as plagues and turning staffs into snakes. Joshua and his people believed God because God promised Joshua's people that he would protect them from the Egyptians. And God did protect them. And he protected them by something as absurd as parting the waters of the Red Sea. Joshua believed God because God promised Joshua's people that he would provide for them in the desert where no food could grow. And God did by producing manna that literally fell from the sky. It's crazy. So, much like their freedom and their well-being and their very lives, the victory over Jericho was God's gift to the people of Israel. It was not their own achievement. It wasn't because they had a great idea or luck on their side, or even because they had the largest army. It was because victory was God's gift to them. God was looking for uncompromising obedience and devotion, and God was, over time, creating a people for himself. And so it's not surprising that we see the characteristics of God come out on behalf of his people. Love and grace and compassion and goodness It is in God's character to give good gifts. And as the Israelites learned to trust in God and learned to trust that God is who he says he is, we begin to see their unquestioning obedience to God, at least for now. I would imagine that it was just as easy for them to get caught up in their own plans as it is for us today I'm sure that they looked to Joshua and his inner circle to make efficient plans regarding how they were going to defeat Jericho. So when Joshua came back to them and he told them that his plan was for them to march around the city seven times, making a whole lot of racket, I can just imagine what they were thinking. But our thinking 
changes as God transforms us. God has been working on their hearts for decades as they wandered. God continued to teach them to turn their eyes upon God alone. When they complained and said that slavery in Egypt was better than this wandering through the desert, God did the work of recreating his people for himself. When they were hungry and thirsty and in the dead center of Sinai, a dry and lifeless desert, God was teaching them what it means to depend on him. When they worshipped their own idols, turning their back on God, God used that as an opportunity to draw them back to himself. The Israelites were not different than we are. This life of obedience did not happen overnight. They were not a group of people that when God said jump, they asked how high. So this story of Jericho is so important to the bigger narrative of God and to the bigger story of the Israelite nation because this time when God said jump, they did say how high. And so instead of going back to old habits of doing things their own way, they leaned on the faith that God had been building in them for decades. God had been breaking them of their habits of living a double life, of being devoted to God in one moment and then turning their backs on him in the next. God was developing lives of obedience and faithfulness. And the absurd instructions that he gave them regarding Jericho was just another step in becoming the people that God designed them to be. Are you seeing the bigger story here? From their captivity in Egypt until this very moment, it was as if the Israelites were in training. It was grueling, and they wanted to quit. They didn't think they would ever make it. Some days they wandered and nothing happened at all. They did not get quick results. They were often tired and hungry and sick of having no home. So what seems like a crazy story to us when we pan out is a larger story about God creating a people for himself. And there is great hope in that story for us as well. Because God's desire is still to create a people for himself. His desire has not changed. His love for his people has not changed. His compassion and mercy and grace and radical inclusivity have not changed. And you know what else hasn't changed? The reality that this life of faith takes time. A lot of time. A whole life's worth of time, really. There are times in our lives when we are going to want to turn around and go back to Egypt. To go back to the way that things used to be. To go back to the way where things are the way that we've known them. Whether it's good for us or not, we go back because it's comfortable. There are times when we will grow impatient, waiting on God to do something. And so we will turn our focus on our worship elsewhere. We'll worship our jobs, our sports, our money, our stuff, our reputation, or even other people. There are times when we are going to be too afraid to take the next step. Times when we aren't sure that God's plan is what's best. Times when we're just not sure how to trust that God has a plan for us at all. And so when we know the bigger story of God and of God's people, we remember 
that God, God's way doesn't always seem like the fastest, easiest, or most efficient way. But when we pan out and see the bigger story, we know that God's way, even though it may not make sense to us sometimes, his way is of much greater value than our own. We remember that God sometimes calls us to think outside the box. That sometimes the best way to do something is to take the road less traveled or to take the road never traveled. Knowing that God's logic may not seem logical to us at all and choosing to trust him anyway. That God might be calling us to do something that we don't think we're good at. That he might be calling us to do something that we are uncomfortable with. To talk to somebody that we don't like to engage issues that we are uncomfortable talking about or to stand up for people who don't have a voice even when that feels risky to us or to forgive someone that our culture tells us we don't have to forgive. Maybe God isn't telling you to march around the city, but maybe God is asking you to think outside of your own box so far outside of your own box that maybe you'll use your vacation time to go on a mission trip to India. Who knows? Obedience to God makes us do some crazy things. Marching around Jericho was so far outside the box, they could have said no. It would have been logical for them to say no. Maybe I would have. But their obedience and their willingness to live outside the tiny box that we often put God in Well, that kind of faithfulness and trust led them to a brand new home and to the fulfillment of a promise that was generations in the making. Church, I want us to remember that God is still speaking and that the thing that he is calling us to may not be the thing that we have always done and that it may not unfold in any way that we could ever expect or even any way that we might think is logical but we serve a radically loving God who is with us and for us. His ways are not our ways, but his ways are so much better because they lead us to a life that exemplifies the qualities of God and not the qualities of Jen. Not the qualities that you possess, but the qualities that God possesses. Obedience to the Lord is not about a set of rules. It's about an understanding that God desires the very best for you and that in him and in him alone, you will find yourself and you will find your home. And that is what we are being invited to as we gather at the table this morning. It is a call to remember and it is an invitation to come home. And it is my very favorite thing that we do together as a church community. Because the Lord has called us here and invited us to his table. This reminder that it is an even playing field. That not one of us deserves to be at this table more than any other. But that we are all invited. And so we remember the night that the Lord was with his disciples in the upper room. And he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks for the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He told his disciples that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you are remembering 
And you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. And so God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to remember, to remember your story, to remember, Lord, that you are who you say that you are. And that we, as your sons and daughters, are who you said that we are. That we are chosen, that we are loved. And through this bread and this cup, the reminder, Lord, that we have been forgiven through the sacrifice of your son. God, for these gifts and for all that you give to us, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as the servers come forward, I'm just going to explain what we do here. At Hillcrest, we practice what we call open communion, which means that you do not need to be a member of this church in order to be invited to the table. If you are somebody who has a saving faith in Christ, you are welcome here, period. The way that we participate in communion is we're going to invite you to come forward from the front rows to the back and take a piece of bread and take a cup. And if you would like to eat and drink of them while you're up here, you can do that. Or if you'd like to take them back to your seat so that you just have a little bit more time with them, you're welcome to do that as well as our worship team plays. Our bread for this morning is all gluten-free. If that is a need of yours, just be aware of that. And if you would prefer to be served in your seat, then once people start coming forward, just raise your hand uh, and we would be so happy to serve you where you are.